Mac Power Users, episode 489, Gear as a Motivator, with Tyler Stallman. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, along with my pal, Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? I'm excited. We have a guest on the show, someone I've followed online for a long time, and uh, I'm real happy to have him on the Mac Power Users. Welcome to the show, Tyler Stallman. Wow, talk about excited. I'm the excited one here. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, Mac Power just come on. Classic. Mutual Excitement Society. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we want to talk to Tyler is a photographer, a businessman, so many things Tyler does. We're going to talk about all of that in the show. Before we do, though, there's just a couple uh, upfront notices we have, a little bit of introductory business. Yeah, f- few short things. As promised in the last episode, I have created a thread in the MPU forums Uh, Looking for MPU 500 questions. So if you're on the forums, you can uh, you can send those to me there, or of course you can just tweet with the hashtag MPU 500, and I have a little robot going out there and uh, collecting those for me. Or you can just drop me an email. But I'm looking for questions uh, that you want asked of David. So don't send them to David. Just send them to me, or just send them uh, with that hashtag, and I will be scooping those up. I am intentionally not reading that thread. I am a little bit nervous about that thread. I'm not going to lie. It'll be a safe place, I promise. Okay. (laughs) In front of a live audience of hundreds of people. So there's really no escape, right? You know, (laughs) whatever he drops on me, I'm stuck with. Um, uh, I made something I just wanted to share real quick. I've heard a lot of uh, feedback from listeners and readers about the state of dictation on Mac and iOS. Nuance has been pulling out. Uh, I I was going to write a short blog post. It turned into a really long blog post and a 17-minute YouTube video. I don't know what happened, Stephen. It's like a it's a manifesto is what it is about dictation. And I did a whole bunch of samples on uh, screencasting and, and different things with uh, the different dictation engines and how they work and don't work. So if you've got any interest in that stuff, we'll put a link in the show notes. That post is going up uh, right before this show does. And last thing I wanted to mention was... Uh, during the week that this show was in production, Apple released the public beta of iOS 13 and Mac Catalina. Um, I just thought we should just say up front, I, I know, Stephen, you've been using it on your Mac. We're going to spend a lot of time on this. We're going to do a whole show on this stuff later. But uh, I, I think my recommendation would be do not load that. I didn't realize they were going to put the public beta out this early. I'm, I'm running beta two on an iPad. I'm running beta two of Catalina on an extra Mac. And I don't think either one of them are ready for a public beta. I was surprised. They, it seems early to me. Apple has said July. Here we are at the end of June and they're out. Uh, I would say if you, if you want to check it out, do it on an external drive, do it on a spare iPad. Don't dive in head first to this quite yet. Yeah, I, I just, there be dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't say that last year, but I'm saying it this year. <laughs> they were sleeping last year, and now they're yes. awake and hungry. Yes, <laughs> and they will eat your data. Anyway, uh, Tyler Stallman, welcome to the Mac Power Users. Hi, thanks. I thought we should start uh, just by sharing a little bit about of your background with the audience. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have like a, a long list of things because I've done uh, quite a variety of different bits of media that all have some things in common. So... Sometimes my job description is sort of complicated, but it's it's part of what I'm interested in. So I'll start by just saying an idea I wrap my head around lately that I, I kind of like is in the development world, we have the idea of like full stack development where somebody is you know aware of all the different levels of development 
and is able to more or less write a complete application uh, kind of on their own. Uh, you know, whether or not there's a, such things like a true full stack developer. Anyway, I've started thinking about that in terms of creation. So uh, the things that I'm into are video, photo, audio. Uh, I want to start doing music. Like I want to I want to be able to kind of do everything from beginning to end in creative production. And I've so far done a, a pretty wide variety of those things. So I, I don't know. That's that's kind of my long-term goal. My 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 background, I guess, is that I started as a web designer at iStock Photo, uh, right when it was kind of starting up, uh, which was built in my hometown of uh, Calgary. And then I started selling my photos through the website, uh, licensing them there, which turned into more income than I was making doing the web design. So I was able to start doing full-time freelance photography. And then uh, since I was friends with the founder of iStock, uh, after he sold the company to Getty, we ended up working together on a few different web projects. So we wanted to do things like uh, Life Magazine's website, a site for the Saatchi Gallery, uh, and most recently Stocksy United, which is another stock photo company. And then I met my wife right when we started doing Stocks United. Now her and I run our business together doing photo, video, and the things I mentioned earlier. So that's that's kind of the, the fast forward version. Now, did you always uh, know that, I mean, did you want to become a professional photographer or was that something you, you know, how did you, it's quite a change, you know, from web developer to photographer. Yeah. Was it a plan or how did it happen? It really came out of the interest in gear um, with, with so many of these things. I think this is how I ended up with the variety of goals of having different skills is I, I, I love the gear. Like cameras are such beautiful objects. I wanted to own nice cameras and to have an excuse to buy a nice camera, I have to get better at photography. And it's actually even the same for audio. I mean, I, I make a podcast because I'm a bad musician, but I still wanted to have a nice <laughs> microphone. And I still wanted, like, I like that. I honestly, it, being a gearhead drove a lot of the creation. And so same with, you know, computers, uh, I care a lot about and I find a lot of interest in. So, okay, if I want the best and fastest computer, I need to give myself an excuse to need it. So that means creating some complicated media. So it, it sounds kind of backwards. Um, I, I don't know if maybe it's the, the wrong motivation to have or not not as uh, altruistic as a, a creative should have, but I just I really like using technology. And uh, so I, I get excited about where it meets creativity. I, you know what? I kind of get that. <laughs> and I, I bet a lot of listeners do too, because I know there are certain areas of my life where gear has driven interest and, and cameras would be one of them. Yeah. Anytime I have a new camera, it's an excuse to go shoot. I'm, I'm way more excited about shooting the same thing I always shoot just because I want to see how this new camera is going to perform. Before. I was in bed watching the Sony menu video, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the yeah. menu system on the Sony cameras is, is uh, quite intense. Mm -hmm. And and so I'm sitting there with the camera body and I've got the YouTube video. It's like an hour long video. And my wife walks in and just looks at me like I'm completely insane. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe we are. Which Sony are you using actually? A7 III. One of the A7s. A7 uh, yeah, that's the same one yeah. here. Steven so, is partly uh, responsible for that expense, by the way. <laughs> good job. No, it's, it's good to have friends that can uh, push you in the right direction. I love my A7 III. But yeah, the, the menu system... Boy, sometimes yep. you're just wandering around for days in there looking for what you what you want. Once you get me started on gear, I'll have a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find that uh, yes, your idea of like the gear is a motivator for you. Uh, I, I sort of like your honesty in that. I feel like there are people 
who would say that the gear, like, don't let the gear get in your way and just start creating. But you're you're not not saying that. I think what you're saying is the gear sort of you like it to to sort of push you into to new maybe like whole new areas. And I think that's an interesting take and and one that I agree with. I resonate with as well. Um, do you think though, like, if someone is you know getting started or they are struggling with uh, you know the the creation process, like? At what point does do they need to look at their gear and think, is this what's holding me back? Or like, do you have a philosophy about that when talking with creators who are uh, just starting out? It's it's a tough one. I mean, it's not something any of us ever really get past. Um, I, I think the common wisdom is uh, people will say the gear doesn't matter. You know, just go create. And there's there's so much to that, especially with modern cell phones. I mean, what you can create with an iPhone is incredible. So if that's all you have, you can start doing things that other people will find interesting, like, or that you'll feel excited about, like whatever you have right now, you can go create something great because the technology, the good technology has trickled down to the mainstream. So everything we have is actually pretty impressive, but uh, it, it is worth acknowledging that you do set limits of the quality of output. Um, and fortunately, you get to the top quality pretty quick. Like you get 80% of the performance of what a camera can do once you spend $1,200. Um, even though you can spend $100,000 if you want, and there is an improvement after that point, you're already most of the way there when you say when you have an a7 III. That has most of the quality any photographer needs for anything. So um, it's good to know what those differences are. Are, like what gains do you get as you start to spend a little bit more more money but you really shouldn't obsess over them because those differences become marginal yeah i definitely am above my weight class with my camera but i've been doing a bunch of youtube and different stuff lately and it, it really has made the process easier and i guess that's and the way for me that the gear helps drive the content because like, oh, wait, now that I have equipment capable of doing X, Y, and Z, it's time for me to try that. And then suddenly that stuff finds it into a field guide or a video. Well, an interesting thing about the a7 III is that it really is priced in the mid-range and it performs as a professional camera. It's I really found it an exciting step in production. And I have a lot of complaints about it. I'm actually thinking about getting rid of it for one thing. But I, w I do have a lot of good things to say about it. I'm glad that it exists because the, the video quality and the photo quality is truly professional grade. Like you could work with this camera, but the price is lower than what you used to need to uh, get that same image quality. I mean, I, and basically I dropped it by about $1,000. I'm thinking in Canadian terms, by the way. I know American prices will be a bit different, but, you know, it kind of went down from 3000 to 2000 with the release of the a7 III. I, th I think it was a great step forward for that. And Canadian dollars are different value and friendlier, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they say, they apologize. <laughs> uh, so what what sort of work uh, are y'all doing now, sort of generally? You know, you've you've taken this path where you've ended up in this... Uh, content world working with your wife, but what, what sort of work are y'all doing? So this is when I have a hard time explaining it. And, um, and just because it's complicated, I don't want to make that sound f fancy. Like just cause there's a, there's a long list of different things. I don't want it to make it sound like, Oh, I'm, I'm so busy and I have so much going on. It's more that we've almost had a hard time ever saying no to things. So if an opportunity comes up, we're like, yeah, we'll make it work. We'll figure out how to do it. And that means that what our business has become is saying yes to so many different types of things. So um, a, a lot of it, like kind of 
kind of the backbone is commercial uh, photo and video production. And a lot of the time we'll do both of those same things for a client, which uh, I find to be a bit of an upsell because a lot of the times to have that done well, you do need to go to two different people. It's really challenging to for one person to shoot photos and videos at the same time. So um, my wife, Anya, will often take photos if I'm shooting video and, um, and we're able to do that together. Uh, and a lot of the time she'll also, if we're just shooting photos, she'll do a lot of the art production and pre-production and then I'll do more of the technical, like, you know, holding the camera and stuff like that. Um, and so that'll be commercial meaning that, you know, things for magazines, uh, which used to be a much bigger part of our business, but a lot of magazines have disappeared lately. Um, so they just, <laughs> they're, they're not even there, uh, which means we used to work a lot more out of Toronto, but now it means that a lot more of our work has become spread out to just being through online clients. It's become more, um, less, uh, location dependent, which has been interesting. So now the commercial work becomes more web-based. Uh, so things that'll be used in advertising and, um, I don't know what, whatever people need photos and videos for, uh, which it, it we, I could also differentiate that the, in the, in the higher end, like we're at the, we're kind of at like mid-level production where we're working directly with the client. There is a level of production that's above us where we'd be going through an agency and the agency would be hiring us out as just like the cinematographer or the director mm-hmm. or both. And there'd be also be a creative agency in between. We're at the direct to, to business level where we're managing all of that ourselves and we hire a few people, but um, that's, yeah, that's just kind of where we sit in terms of how things get made for us. Cause it can change as you move up and down the chain. And that has a whole bunch of different challenges because every client is different. Whereas when you work through an agency, you're kind of insulated from that. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of our biggest challenges are, um, ch- uh, context shifting constantly that, that we do, we're, we're constantly, uh, kind of changing our focus and, uh, you know, remembering how we were dealing with this one other previous relationship. And then we have to go back and work on the project at night that we were doing with another client. So there's always this moving back and forth and that's something we'd like to get better at. What's becoming a bigger part of it is social media stuff. So uh, my wife's had a fashion blog for a long time. So for a few years, that was actually what we were doing for most of our work was um, shooting things that would appear on the blog uh, and sponsorships were kind of where the money came in through that. And then uh, Instagram as well, which would also have sponsored posts on it. And her, uh, and then she'd also like appear in TV and magazines and stuff. So supporting her was like a big thing for quite a while. Now my YouTube has started to become a bit more popular. So uh, that's become another income channel uh, as well as my podcast, which um, all, they're, they're all, you know, sponsorship related. So it's that a brand will approach us with like, hey, we want to get the message out there, just uh, similar to how you guys do it. And um, they get a little message put into our content. I'm always so impressed when thinking about the work that y'all do, that you seem to have done a really good job in adapting as time has gone on. So as as clientele changes, as one medium becomes more popular and maybe one begins to fade a little bit, y'all seem to do a really good job being able to to make those changes, you know, with the environment you're in. And I know, like, as, you know, someone else who owns like a creative media business, uh, that can be difficult and scary if all of your eggs are sort of in one basket. But it seems like y'all have done a really good job at having multiple projects, multiple streams of income to keep the business running as long as it has. Yeah, I think that's an advantage of being interested in the technology that a a lot of people will say your business is based on running a magazine 
um, when magazines become Twitter accounts uh-huh. or Instagram <laughs> accounts, or you know, when they really shift to to what the business is, if you are more attached to just creating the content, which I don't blame people for. I mean, I, I can totally understand how you get into that, but if you don't, if you just find the technology frustrating, and when you try to learn something new, it upsets you, and you want to push it away. I can that is, that makes it much harder to transition, and um, I so I almost feel lucky that those changes are exciting for me because I know that for people that are frustrated by them, it's it's a big barrier to mm-hmm. moving somewhere new. I I almost feel like in the modern world, the disruption cycle has been drastically compressed. Like when my dad was in business, I think disruption largely was on a twenty or thirty year cycle. Whereas now it seems like it's on a two or a three year cycle. It's so easy to suddenly become obsolete with what you're doing. You've constantly got to be thinking about what the next move is. Yeah, it, 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 it is challenging. I mean, I would say that it has sort of slowed lately. Um, just if you look at the amount of social platforms, the ones that I, I'm talking about that we're kind of succeeding on are getting pretty old right now. I mean, all of them are, are going on 10 years old and nothing really big has come up in that time uh, i'd say except with the exception of tiktok which we have not been able to make work for us i haven't even tried that is for young people um and and snapchat as well like we were kind of there for a bit but it faded but it's it's become a little more stable lately i think that's partly because it's just so hard for startups to compete with these giant social media companies but the shape of them changes so you know instagram is becoming stories the posts are almost fading into people's uh like the, people aren't even noticing posts anymore it's all about instagram stories so that is the each platform is shifting pretty quickly now now are you still doing stock photography we yeah definitely so on stocks united um we still have all of our stuff there uh we, we have image number one there uh, which That's is okay. kind of fun and nice. um, but we don't keep uh we haven't been uploading for a little while just because the other things keep us busy but i mean it's been great to have that little bit of uh, trickle side income for a long time now, um, you know, it, it still does make a noticeable amount of money. It's not enormous. We definitely couldn't live off of it, but it is still possible to make money off stock photos, which, um, you know, it, I, I mentioned that earlier. I was at, working at iStock Photo out of college, and that was a real golden era. Like stock photography was, if you were in the right place at the right time, it was amazing that I was able to have a full-time job just licensing images uh, at, that, at that time in my life. It was, it was pretty incredible. The value has dropped quite a bit like the bottom has dropped out of that market a lot um so the the nice thing is that stocksy our whole purpose in founding it was to make it a co-op so every all the contributors actually own parts of the company so at the end of the year everybody gets a bonus based on how much they sold and everybody votes on where the company's going so it was a really unique type of of company or actually co-ops not even i mean it's not a corporation or anything so um that's been able to to keep going for a while now which has been pretty great well, Tyler, you're doing a lot of uh, stuff. That's <laughs> uh, pretty remarkable, really. I, <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize um, how far down the stack you went. I should really, I should sleep more. <laughs> how, how much of your work, if you were to balance it, like how much of it is like your commercial work versus the projects you're pursuing with your wife? I mean, how does it all balance out? Well, if I look at the last month, we probably had about about one commercial job per week and about... I'll have a, yeah, okay. It's actually pretty easy to break down. So I've had about like one social media job per week. She's had about one social media job and one commercial job per week. That's kind of what we've been doing really recently. Um, 
this is something we talk about on focus all the time, but I'll tell you, um, for me, cause I have two things, you know, I'm a lawyer, but I'm also a, a, a professional nerd. Um, that balance is never easy. Um, how's it going for you? Oh, terrible. <laughs> I mean, like, it, you know, it's good in the way that, um, like we get to do exciting things. We travel uh, a lot. We've been able to do, do things we have aspired to, which has been really great. But, you know, being inside of it, we also just see all the obstacles and all the ways that we can improve. And um, definitely just the ability to organize or the advantages of focusing, we are aware that we're missing out on them. Like there are things that by doing so much, you end up missing some of the, the positive parts of having a regular schedule and showing up in the same place every morning. Um, so that's that's our goal for the next, you know, five years is to, to really kind of turn it into a bit more of a system and, and be able to treat it more like a normal business and less like five different yeah, get, businesses. Getting used to letting go of things, I think it's not that you ever get used to it, but getting able to accept that, I think that's the battle in my mm-hmm. mind. Hey, hey, if gear is a motivator, I want to talk about your gear right after this. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. SaneBox is a service that, quite frankly, just makes your email better. It learns what email is important to you, and then it filters out the rest, saving you hours and hours. And it works with all kinds of email programs and services. You're not logging into their special app where you're you're stuck. You can, you know, go and on an email at Vision Quest like David has, using it across a range of services. And we're talking about SaneBox, we're talking about great email filtering. They have things like Sane Later that keeps your inbox full of only what really matters. Those other emails are just stored away for, for later. There's Sane Black Hole where you can unsubscribe from an email with a simple click. You can snooze emails. I do this often on the weekend and uh, you know pick something up on Monday. And then there's Sane Reminders. You can CC something like one week at SaneBox.com. And if your receiver doesn't reply back to you, you get a reminder in your inbox in a week. It's a great way to make sure you're getting the replies you need. And SaneBox offers more than just filtering. You can move attachments to Dropbox or other cloud services. Lots of great features over on their website. SaneBox has various pricing plans starting at as low as about $4 a month. But if you go to sanebox.com slash MPU, you can sign up for a 14-day free trial. And when you do sign up, you'll receive a $25 credit on any plan. And my guess is that you're going to love it because 66% of MPU listeners who have tried SaneBox end up subscribing. That's sanebox.com slash MPU to receive a $25 credit on any plan. Our thanks to SaneBox for making our email better and for their support of MPU. All right, so I know from your YouTube channel that you recently made the jump to the uh, the USB C Thunderbolt Touch Bar world of of the MacBook Pro. Uh, is that your only machine? I mean, I know you guys travel a lot, so I assume that that's a, at least an important part of your setup. Yeah, it's turned into the only machine that I'm really able to to access a lot of the time. Right now, I'm recording into a 27 inch iMac, uh, the generation just before 4K. Let me just pull up the. Okay, so this is a late 2013 uh, i7. So I, I maxed out this iMac when I got it because I I love iMacs a lot. I mean, I've I've been using them for a long time. I like the power of them. I would be using an iMac Pro right now, except we travel too kind of too much to put it to use. Um, so unfortunately, I don't get to edit at a desktop very often. So uh, like a, a funny side effect of that is that it means that a lot of the time I'm editing 4K video 
in a tiny chunk of the window that's less than seven. It's like 720 pixels wide. I can barely see this 4K footage because I'm on a, a laptop. But the uh, MacBook Pro, the this is this is the 2018 model before they upgraded the graphics mm-hmm. cards to the the Vega GPUs, and it's been serving me really well. It 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 handles everything that I throw at it. I, sometimes I'm waiting at times that I would rather not. Uh, generally, that's when I'm transcoding raw 4K footage. That's when it starts to struggle a bit. But most things, it can it can really chew through it pretty well. Um, it, it's been doing a really great job. So you're using it just uh, as a notebook. I mean, you at the office are using an external display or extra storage or just basically a notebook that goes where you go? So I recently got a BenQ monitor, 32-inch, but I, I really haven't integrated it into any kind of workflow. It's so... So far, I've been using it to plug my camera into and monitor the, what the camera's doing. <laughs> so usually, I'm just uh, using the laptop, and yes, lots of external storage. Um, another negative side effect of of the traveling and kind of the variety of work we do is it means that I can't have a giant RAID that I'm always accessing. So we are constantly buying uh, portable USB drives that uh, we just cycle through relatively quickly, and I always have two mirrored ones at all times wherever we're going so when we're traveling that means that you know i'll i'll have a copy of the photo drive and a copy of the video drive and my wife will have a copy of the photo drive and the video drive so they're separated and we have redundancy when we travel but it it means we just have a big stack of portable drives kicking around so so the spinning drives or ssds yeah they're spinning um the best thing i upgraded about the the mac the macbook pro is putting a two terabyte ssd inside i'm so grateful that i did because it means i can store most of my current projects on it so usually that's you know maybe two or three youtube videos and um um, the last month's worth of photography and that means that generally i don't need to rely on fast external storage because i've tried doing that but um they weren't big enough and i don't know it just didn't work out so i was i was really glad to have the uh, big ssd inside that's made a huge difference and they're the external ssds are still really expensive um but just t- talk through your workflow on that a little bit. Like, what do you put on the spinning drive? How do you decide to, and and how does it get there? Sure. Um, well, I'll do. I'll, I'll separate the photo and, and video side. Um, for photography, we use Lightroom as our main management software, which I have some frustrations with. I do keep casting my eye around. I mean, Capture One is a really incredible piece of software that's giving Adobe a run for their money. But still, currently, we are using Lightroom, and that means that every time we plug a SS or sorry, an SD card into the computer, we download all the photos to the external drive, and Lightroom is linking to them, um, and it just generates previews. So when the drive's not there, we can see all the photos, but we can't edit them. So uh, a lot of the time, we'll need to be plugged in to be accessing them. Then uh, we will delete all the bad photos because we shoot a really, really high volume. Um, so I mean, a rec- uh, we just did a trip to Israel, and that was. Uh, almost 30,000 photos in a week. It was, it was too much. Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. A lot of that gets deleted. Uh, 30,000. So how do you separate the wheat from the chaff quickly oh, with 30,000 well, photos? The, the, my wife does it. That's, that's oh, okay. part of how. Oh, that's, I need to talk to my wife about this. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's a nice thing of having a business partner, but, um, she, yeah, she'll go, she'll do that hard work of actually going through everything. And a lot of it is just being kind of ruthless and, um, a lot of most of these photos are du- are basically duplicates, right? Like yeah. almost all of them look kind of the same, and it's just about choosing the best best ones. It's harder when it's something like shooting an event, 
and every photo is quite different because then you're tempted by more good photos. You're tempted to keep more. Yeah. But when they're all very similar, you're like, look, I'm glad to get get rid of I, I have 200 versions of this one photo. I'll get rid of all but three and, and that is fine. Yeah, it's, it's almost um, like so, the Marie Kondo approach, right? <laughs> you, rather than, yes, than picking photos to delete, you're picking photos to keep. Exactly. Yes, that is that is the only way to survive overshooting, which I, I mean, I, I would say we're on the very high side. Most for most people doing the same jobs as us can still do the jobs shooting less. We happen to work in a way where we're shooting more volume. How about you, Steven? Do you have like in your library, do you have like 17 pictures of one pose? I, I do a pretty good job of weeding stuff out uh, on import. For instance, Father's Day was about a month ago and took a bunch of pictures of the kids with you know, various family members in the yard. Uh, you know, everyone's dressed up nice. And I went through those and when I imported them, uh, there are definitely some photos that are similar that I kept, but I try to go through and, you know, if I'm not happy with it today, I'm not going to be happy with it tomorrow. So go ahead and get rid of those that, you know, the exposure is a little weird or, you know, some kid is mid blink or something. Those don't get to stick around. All right. So I interrupted. Tyler, you got your 30,000 whittled down to a thousand. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, probably. We'll probably hold on to a thousand and we'll use... I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think what this example really is. Yeah. So that was a thousand from like a week and then we'll use a hundred of them. Uh, yeah. Then the good photos will be edited in Photoshop for just basic things like removing junk in the background. Uh, usually it's just kind of spot removal stuff. That's what Photoshop, that's all Photoshop is used for for us. Save the PSD back into Lightroom and then do the color editing using Lightroom's raw uh, editing tools. Yeah, that's that's most of the workflow. And then we export the JPEGs to Dropbox, and that's how we share the the finals between uh, each other and the client. And the the uh, when you're done, you that's when you export them off to the external drive, which gets mirrored. Um, no, so they they live on that external drive. Oh, okay. Um, well, there's a bit of a complication because there's two of us, and we were working on different computers. Ah. I was trying to make it sound simple. I was trying to explain it in the one computer way. Sure. But so she's got she's got the drive and the Lightroom catalog is on her computer. She sends me uh, raw files of the ones that I'm going to edit. I edit those PSDs on my computer, and then I from there export the JPEGs, which become the JPEGs are like our finals. We don't really worry as much about we keep the raw originals, but the deliverables are always JPEG. We don't deliver in, in TIFF or anything like do, that because it's generally not worth the file size. Do you share the Lightroom library? I mean, is it like on the external drive so you can bounce it between both computers? No. Unfortunately, there isn't a great way to work as a team with Lightroom. It does it just doesn't do anything for you. You have to you have to kind of just make it work for yourself. And there's not a lot of other people I've found that have had the same problems as me. So I just, I haven't wait, found a way to solve it. So if yeah. anybody listening knows how to make uh, two computers and two people sync together in Lightroom, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, let me know. But, uh, you know, we just, we kind we have just kind of a makeshift way of, of, of making work that it's a little janky because of the two people, but it works. Yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll quickly blast through the, the video section of the Mac too, right. um, which I'll just do a quick of Final Cut is where all the real editing happens. Um, uh, a recommendation is Motion VFX for their plugins. They have great transitions and stuff. Uh, when I'm editing the, the raw 4K, uh, that will be I'll do the coloring and resolve, and then I'll usually use Audition to kind of sweeten the audio, which is uh, also what I use to to do the podcast. So yeah, the audio stuff is Audio Hijack and Isotope. That's all the Mac. Isotope is always the end of the story for everybody that touches audio, oh, isn't it? It's yeah. so good. It, it it can do things that um, no other app can. So Isotope. 
great for noise removal, echo reduction. If you have, you know, a lot of like even just like like background noise that you couldn't get out in other ways. And Audition and Logic and other apps have noise reduction, but the way Isotope does it is some sort of magic. I mean, it can it can fix things and repair audio that I thought were were long gone. It can pull back from the brink. It's really impressive. Absolutely. Yeah, I was using Audition noise removal before, and it I stopped using it because it was so bad. It it really deteriorated the audio. But Isotope maintains all the original. Yeah, quality. Every screencast I make goes through Isotope. I think every Steven's doing the edits these days. Every every episode of MPU goes through Isotope, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. We, yeah. we have good recording setups, but uh, so it's not just like field work. I mean, anything even in a nice studio you can always improve it's uh it's really incredible and they're always putting it on sale i got it on sale last year if you're interested in that application just sign up for their newsletter and just wait um what about over on ios what what uh hardware are you using and to to take all these pictures with your phone yeah so uh, an iphone 10s uh, which we i mean we actually use for real work relatively often because in the era of Social media advertising, like a lot of brands are where their ads end up is social media. So it's not necessarily a negative to have it feel like it was shot yeah. on a phone. So we, we actually do shoot on our phones quite a lot. And yeah, to the 10S has been great. Um, I also really like the 10R. Like, uh, you know, the, the new generation of cameras is is really amazing. It was a big jump forward that I think was very underhyped in the announcement although it does have some weird hdr still but how do you see it i mean what's the big improvement that that needs to be talked about the dynamic range it was it was a real jump like that's why i push people towards the a 10r or 10s instead of a 10 because the way hdr was handled just it just took a, a leap forward i mean they they kept calling it smart HDR. I don't think they changed the branding around it or anything. They're just like, oh, there's improvements to it. And then I realized once I started testing it, I'm like, wait, this is starting to really compete with the big cameras, uh, especially in terms of video. You need to have a top-of-the-line camera to get the same dynamic range. I find that even in some situations, the A7R three can't have the same dynamic range as the video from an iPhone XS. It's, it's really amazing. That's the downside crazy. is that sometimes that HDR becomes... It looks fake. Uh, so if I'm say if I'm wearing a black shirt and there's something dark behind me, it'll make it look totally nuts. Um, that, like there are there are flaws in it, and that's the main thing I'm hoping they fix in the next generation. We definitely live in the age of computational photography now. You know, while the uh, was it the sensor in the iPhone is smaller than you're going to get in a big camera, the processor I think is probably better than anything you're going to find in a big camera. Yeah, it's I. This is something people comment on a video anytime I review a phone on YouTube. Everybody is saying like, "Well, what if Canon could do this in their uh, in their bodies?" And I, it would be it would be amazing. I mean, it needs to be integrated at that level. Like they need to be all in the same camera because just doing it in post mm-hmm. is is not the same. Like it's the way that the photo was taken, and I would love to see big sensors do that someday. Yeah, the problem is that Apple has literally billions of dollars and years of research into that. And that's going to be hard to compete. Oh, yeah. with. Nobody's catching up anytime soon. I think you're more likely, more likely, to see Apple get a bigger sensor than to see Canon and mm-hmm. and some of these other companies get that that background processing. Yeah, and then the other things they use. I mean, um, that's I usually use the default camera app. Um, I mean, people might ask. I like uh, Halide as well. 
but I don't shoot in raw that often. Usually I just shoot in, in uh, H, uh, Heath. <laughs> and then uh, the apps that I like the most, uh, Visco, VSCO, for editing colors. Uh, Spark Camera is a way that I create little um, like micro vlogs, especially for Instagram stories. And I also use Video Leap for editing. But um, I, I keep it pretty simple. I, I, I test a lot of different things, but those are the ones I come back to the most often. You, you had told us before that you uh, use these moment lenses. Could you explain those a little bit? Yeah, moment lenses are pretty great. I mean, they make your phone look like a real camera. That's the best part, obviously. And they're just these big, uh, like real lens, like glass lenses that are, are very well constructed that will let you have different focal lengths on your iPhone. Um, the main reason I find them useful is for wide angle photography. So the 18 millimeter is the one that gets the most use. And basically it, it, I think a confusion about these lenses is a lot of people see them and think, Oh, does that make your photos look better? Like some, you know, they're not really clear what that means, but they're like, well, the phone looks more like a camera. So the photo must be better. It's not any better. It's that it's changing the, your field of view, the amount you can see in the photo that you're taking. Um, and if the next iPhone comes, let, let's say it comes with an ultra wide lens, you know, moment will need to find a new place in the market because that's all that it's really doing. It's taking the same lens that you currently have and, and making it see more of the scene, but it does a great job of it. So I, I really like carrying around that 18 millimeter. Yeah. I am a fan of the moment lenses too. I have a few of them and I like the system to begin with because they have a case that they make and it has in essence a screw over the lens uh, unit of the camera where you can just screw the moment lens on but then you can take it off and it's just a case and then when you get a new phone like if the phone upgrades they make a new case for the new body style so you don't have to go back and rebuy lenses which we used to have to do when we were getting these add-on lenses a few years ago and they're great like like uh, Tyler said I think they they do a good job of changing the focal length of your phone and they fit in a jeans pocket. I mean, I walked all over Europe with these lenses in my pocket. And anytime I saw something interesting, I wanted a wider angle. And they, they also, I like the fisheye too, which I know some people really don't like fisheye, but occasionally it works. And like I was in a cathedral or something and I didn't have a lot of room. I'd screw the fisheye on my camera and just get this amazing picture. Um, it's a really easy upgrade for your iPhone if you want to improve your camera game. Yeah, and one more recommendation I can make is in terms of cases, I really like the uh, Nomad Moment Mount case. So it's the company's Nomad, um, but they make one with a Moment Mount on it. And I prefer it to the Moment case. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, it's really great. I'm looking at it right now. It's on my phone. This Moment. They have a leather back. They look. They kind of look like a blend between the leather Apple cases and... Ah, uh, you're going to cost me money, Tyler. That's what happens on this show sometimes. I think a lot of people sometimes struggle, you know, maybe that they own a a full-size camera or, you know, even a nice point shoe, something better than an iPhone. But the iPhone's, of course, always always in their pocket. It's always with them, and you can share basically instantly to social media. Where do you think that that line is when the iPhone is the right tool versus, hey, you know what, it's time to to pull out one of my bigger weapons? Yeah, it, it really can compete at a, um, when you look at the images, smaller. So on an iPhone screen, the difference between an iPhone photo and a, a bigger camera is not so obvious other than, um, you know, if you have like some nice bokeh in the black background, the blur of a real camera, that's the final thing that I, I still don't find that um, portrait mode can really compete with. 
But um, other than that, they'll look almost the same on a screen size. It's once you look any bigger than that. So as soon as it's on a laptop or a slightly bigger print, you can really start to see cell phones fall apart a bit. They start to look a little more mushy and you can just see uh, like some texture to the detail that isn't ideal. That's, that's about it though. So it, for social media purposes, it kind of doesn't matter. But if it's something that you really care about for the long run, I've definitely had some photos that I took on my phone at the time, I was like, hey, iPhones are amazing. The The camera's great on this thing. Right. And of course, this was an iPhone 5S. And now I look back at those photos, I'm like, you know, I probably should have taken that on a real camera. Um, they, they are better now. Like, we have definitely crossed a different line. But if you really care about the photo, I think you should still use a real camera. I mean, for example, anytime somebody is going to have a new baby, I would say you should go buy a real camera. It's it's absolutely worth it for those really critical memories that are, are going to matter forever. I think I totally agree with that. I, I definitely have those those images in my photo libraries when my kids were really little. It's like, man, what a great picture. I'm sad that I took it with what I took it with. And uh, some of that is is size. You know, some of those early images wouldn't look good if I had, you know, had them printed. But it, there's this quality that you can get from a bigger sensor with more distance from the glass that the iPhone, no matter how good it is, just can't compete with yet. No, it's true. It, I don't know if it'll ever catch up with everything. Uh, there are things about optics and the you know distance of a sensor to a lens. And there's certain things that will always look a certain way because of the size of the camera, um, even if the sensors can, can really compete. Well, I think also part of it is as the iPhone gets better, it's like when you say you get a real camera that you know you need to get a, a nice camera to replace the quality of an iPhone photo at this point you know it's yeah yeah i mean the mid-range market the um point and shoot market there is, there's very few reasons to get a point and shoot anymore like you have to have really specific needs uh, like maybe you need a really long zoom and it needs to be small but there's there's not many reasons to get a point and shoot these days well as but as a professional you do have a real, you have several real cameras. Which ones are you using, and and how'd you pick them? Yeah, uh, the, so I have the A7 III I mentioned earlier, which that's been our that was our main video camera for a while. It does incredible 4K, um, 120 frames per second slow motion, and it's small and it has uh, sensor stabilization. So I I bought it entirely as a video camera. It was kind of a backup stills camera. It just happens to also work well for stills, but. I much prefer Canon for stills work. So the 5D Mark IV is what we've been using since since it came out. Um, so usually we'll be traveling with those two cameras. And um, I'm interested in the EOS R. I think that would make sense to replace the A7 III right now. Um, but and also just to, to give a bit of explanations, the reason the things I don't like about the A7 III, I know you have one, so I don't want to make you feel bad about it. I mean, the quality is really <laughs> no, I'll just blame Stephen. But it, it is matter. a pain. <laughs> It is a pain to use it. I mean, the, the way you're describing the menu, it's even once you have memorized the menu, it's still a mess. It's still a challenge. And you're always fighting with that user interface a bit. Um, and same with the color. Um, the color on Sony, a lot of people have said like Canon has the best color and Sony is, is worse. I think there's a little confusion around that. They both capture as much information as you need to make the color look great. But if you don't want to spend time refining the colors, Canon gets to a nice place sooner. So I find on the a7 III, 
I need to to massage them a little bit more to make them look great. It, it is such, for me. It was such an improvement over any camera I've ever owned. I I'm still in a honeymoon phase with it. I you should be. It's great. It's such a literally. Good I have to try to take a bad picture. I have to intentionally screw something up to get a bad picture with the camera. No, it's it's amazing. And then the one I'm excited about. So I mean, this is the camera I'm most excited to use whenever I can lately is the Canon C200. Uh, and this is our first big video, like dedicated video camera. It is a, um, it's, I mean, it's a cinema camera, so it does not shoot stills at all. And it shoots in 4K RAW, which RAW is, it's been amazing to be able to do that with video. It makes a really huge difference. I mean, again, if anybody listening has a good camera, if you have an a7 III and you're shooting JPEGs instead of RAW, you're missing out a lot. RAW is Raw's the best. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't usually think it's worth it on phones, but on a bigger camera, it's worth it. So for video, it's been fantastic to have that flexibility and that dynamic range and that image quality. I've been really happy with the C two hundred so far. Uh, so we, we've talked about RAW versus JPEG before on the show, but give us just kind of a summary for folks that haven't heard that before, and maybe some tips because I think a lot of folks do have cameras that can shoot RAW, but they're afraid of the storage and just the data management pieces that come with that maybe you got any ideas to help people out yeah yeah for sure i mean the, the on the storage side it does it can become a bit of a challenge it's much much bigger to keep raw files uh the the trick is um you got to delete the bad ones you can't hold on to everything all the time um and then in some ways you just kind of have to buy more storage it is there is a little bit more management there but in terms of actually like manipulating the files and stuff you have so much more flexibility in terms of how you can actually change it and what you're able to adjust. The, the most important advantage that goes the longest way is being able to change the white balance. Um, because if you're on auto white balance and it gets it wrong, you you're kind of dead. Can't do, yeah. You can't do much in a JPEG. The, the JPEG, yeah, if, if it's too yellow or too blue, you can't really pull it in either direction without losing a lot of saturation and just destroying the image quality. In RAW, changing the white balance has no impact on the photo. You can go as far as you want in either direction totally fine. Uh, then similar goes for exposure. Uh, you don't have as, it's not infinite flexibility. There are, it can degrade the image as you go up and down, but you have a lot more flexibility. And once you start getting used to raw and then you go back and edit a JPEG, you're like, wow, where did all my, where did all the flexibility go? Where did all my sliders, my sliders are broken now. Um, it's one of those things that, um, you, I mean, you don't have to go do it. If you, uh, find editing photos to be a burden and it's frustrating to you, it may not be for you. I don't, I think some people end up shooting raw and it becomes more challenge. It's so much harder for them to take photos that maybe they shouldn't have done it. Cause if you end up shooting less because you're afraid of filling your hard drive, that's not ideal either. So I think like you got to commit to making a bit of a jump. You might need to fill up a, buy an extra hard drive, but your image quality really can go up. And then, um, in, in, and in terms of JPEG, uh, the reason I prefer to stick to, well, I'm saying JPEG, but now it's Heath on iPhones, to compressed formats on iPhones, is that the, since the sensor is so much smaller, Apple has already figured out how to extract all that data that you would get from a RAW file. They're doing an amazing job of editing it before it even gets to you. So when you take a RAW photo on an iPhone, you have to do a lot of work to get back to the starting place that Apple gave you for free. And um, that it's it takes up a lot more space and you're not getting as big of an advantage. Uh, the biggest advantage, though, I'll say on iPhones is in low light. It can be a lot sharper, um, a little noisier, but it's usually worth it. Um, I have never gone down the rabbit hole of shooting raw on an iPhone. So it sounds like yeah. it can be worth it. 
it sounds like based on how you shoot, it's not, um, it, I don't, I still don't do it very often. You know, I, I, I was just telling you how much I love raw for everything else, but I rarely ever do it. I only do it in uh, low light situations where I really want the photo to look amazing. And that's kind of the only time because it, it's, it's not a night and day difference. I think it's usually worth it to stick to the compressed format. My workflow with my Sony, I shoot in raw. I bring him into, I use Photoshop, the Photoshop's raw environment and edit. And most of the time I end up saving them out as high quality JPEGs. And, and I will keep the raw images on occasion, like if it's a family photo shoot or something like that. But if it's just, hey, I shot these, you know, over the course of a weekend, uh, I sort of let raw do what, you know, give me what it will give me as far as editing. But once I've got them where I want them, I'll just save JPEGs to my photos library for that storage space. So you can mix and match these a little bit, but absolutely. I think if you, if you've got a yeah. camera that has that option, I, I'd say flip it on, go, you know, shoot for a weekend and spend some time editing, editing them on the Mac or on the iPad. And I think I think you'll you'll be won over if you if you spend some time editing with the format. It's just wild how much you can you can change and and adapt those images. Well, and I'll also say that um, uh, in the video workflow, that is what I'm doing as well because uh, the the C200 RAW video takes up. Um, so I have 256 gigabyte cards, and that shoots half an hour. Yikes! So you get half an hour for 256. So what I've been doing is. Uh, transcoding it right away. So I load the whole day worth of shooting into DaVinci Resolve and I make my fixes. I'm like, okay, well, I got the white balance wrong on this and I got the exposure a little off on that. And I just tweak everything and extract all the data I can basically do, you know, what I was describing Apple does intelligently on all of its photos. I'm doing that manually on everything. I'm like, okay, everything is now got the most data that I possibly could get out of it. Now I'll save those as ProRes files that are, are quite a bit smaller. And that's what I hold on to. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, and I, I just would second everything said. If you're going to buy a big fancy camera, shoot raw. It's just so much better. And like Steven says, you only need that raw data long enough to get the the image tweaked and, and finalized. You don't need to keep it afterwards. I doubt Steven's going to go back in 10 years and, and re-white balance the Father's Day images from 2019. So... Well, I, I will say one thing. There was a huge jump around, uh, I think it was like 2012, uh, Lightroom or all of Adobe redid their raw engine. So the way that all the sliders worked completely changed and it made a really, really big difference. And if you go back and edit the same photos from 10 years ago, now with the new raw engine from Adobe, it'll make, your photos will look much, much better. Okay, well, I, I stand corrected. <laughs> I, I hate to complicate it a little bit, but I'm just saying that has happened in the past. It depends how much you care. And it, and it probably will happen again. What What about um, alternatives to photo, uh, Adobe Photoshop? I know both of you use it. You know, Affinity, there's several uh, developers out there now making competing software. A lot of listeners aren't that eager to sign up for a Photoshop subscription. Have you guys got any experience with any of the competitors and any thoughts or recommendations? I I mean, I stick to Photoshop because it's what I grew up on and it's it does everything I need. It's incredibly powerful, but it is relatively expensive and there's really great stuff out there. I I never use the other stuff heavily enough to form really strong opinions about which one's actually better to stick to in the long run. But, uh, you know, I know the Pixelmator and Affinity are both fantastic. So, uh, Stephen, do you have a strong opinion about them? Uh, I'm right where you are. I grew up in school learning Photoshop and 
I already pay for the Adobe Suite for several other applications, so I haven't really haven't really needed to branch out. But to David's point, there are some really good options between Pixelmator Pro and Affinity Photo, both on the Mac. There's lots of options on iOS as well. It's easier than ever to find an application that kind of works the way you think without having to jump into bed with Adobe. Yeah, I, I deal with Pixelmator Pro. Uh, it was a one-time purchase, and they did sponsor us years ago, but I, I purchased it. And the... um just for that reason i don't i'm not good enough at this and i don't do it often enough to justify a subscription i like the idea of buying one app and and it handles my raw photos just fine yeah yeah i like i, I like it i know it's good um i should at some point just spend the time learning a few of these apps just so i can form a real opinion for when people ask because you know i, I don't want to make everybody think that they need uh to subscribe to the whole adobe package which i think less and less uh, is critical these days. I mean, it, it, same with the video side. Um, I mean, right now, I'm, I'm actually doing a series of interviews with like YouTubers and professional commercial editors and talking about why they choose the editing platform that they do. So Premiere, Final Cut, uh, some are using DaVinci more and more these days. But um, it used to be more obvious where you would go and why you would choose the most expensive one. But now it's the the whole everything's being upset because there's all these really great apps coming out at lower prices. Well, I mean, you have so much free time. I think you should just get on that comparison right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, working on it. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by OmniFocus for the web. Hey, OmniFocus users, did you know that you can now use OmniFocus on any computer with a web browser? That's right. The Omni Group has released a new product called OmniFocus for the web, and it works hand in hand with your installation of OmniFocus. So if you're managing your tasks on your iPhone, but then you get sitting at a Windows PC, no problem. You can just log into OmniFocus for the web and see all your tasks. And this isn't just a simple viewing of your tasks. You can also go in and edit tasks. You can mark them off. There's quite a bit of power you can do with OmniFocus for the web. It is a product that is meant to be used in conjunction with the main OmniFocus app on your Mac or your iOS device. But once you've got that app running, you can now access and use and check off and use your data on anything with a web browser. It's just great. So when you're in front of a computer that can't run OmniFocus, you can stay on track with OmniFocus on the web. Now, since this has a back-end web service, there's a subscription involved, you can either just get an add-on subscription if you already own OmniFocus, or they have a full subscription where you can get all the applications on all the platforms plus the web service. Head over to omnigroup.com to learn more about that. You can download a free two-week trial to try OmniFocus on the web. I hear from listeners all the time that use OmniFocus but just want access to their data sometimes when they're away from their Apple devices. Well, gang, this is the solution. Thank you so much, Omni Group, for supporting the Mac Power users. Head over to omnigroup.com today and check out OmniFocus for the web. You mentioned that you've got a podcast. Tell us a little bit about that and how you put that together. Podcasting is kind of my favorite thing to do. Uh, even in terms of in terms of gear, I was talking about how much I, I I love all gear lately. Audio gear is I think the coolest. Like it looks the best. It's uh, you know I have the least real need for it, but that's why I started a podcast so I could justify having some cool audio gear because <laughs> I just think it's great. Um, but yeah, the podcast it's called Stallman Podcast, and it's um, the goal is to kind of merge that creativity and technology so that people that work in in fields that involve both can uh, feel a bit more comfortable about it or get excited about trying out a new part of the creative stack that maybe they're not as comfortable with 
So um, I talk about everything from photography, video, audio, uh, design, and uh, development. Actually, I just did the first development episode with Casey List the other day, and he was telling me, like, here's how you get started as a, as a developer. And um, I just want people to get excited about turning maybe a, a hobby of some kind of creative field into potentially a job or just getting much, much better at the hobby and trying to speak from more of a professional level. Like, actually, I'd say a big inspiration was um, just over the years listening to Alex Lindsay talk about production in the Mac world because most of the other people on podcasts that I listen to aren't doing the really heavy lift, like the ch super challenging level production stuff. And whenever Alex Lindsay talks about it, he's like, he's using stuff to the extreme and like has a million cameras running and like, yeah, that's what I want to learn about. So I'm trying to, to, to cater to a bit of that audience that I always wanted to be a part of where it's like, here's how to tackle some of the hardest problems in production. Now, I don't actually have a camera in Steven's office, but I just imagine once we started talking about audio hardware that he's sitting up on the edge of his seat right now. <laughs> Am I right? Uh, I mean, I, I have some disagreements about your mic choice. I but know. Well, <laughs> you do you, man. Well, you when, you. Okay, when, when Steven came on the podcast the first time, uh, after I was editing it and I was listening to both of our voices, I was like, Steven's mic sounds a lot better than mine. And I ended up, I really kind of mixed, I ended up mixing my levels on that episode to sound more like uh, like yours because I was like, his sounds, it sounds much crisper and cleaner. All right, all right, tell the listeners, what kind of mic do you have? So right now I'm talking to a Heil PR40, um, which, uh, I mean, this, I think this comes from uh, Twit, basically, of that, you know, it was the, the Leo Part mic for, for so long. Like, well, mm -hmm. then there, that's the mic. That's the one I need. And uh, there are things I like. There are qualities to it that I do enjoy. Um, especially for more of like a, a voiceover environment where it's a like shorter duration, more like an announcer. Um, it's a little, it's a little boomy and a little bassy. Um, and what I find it's missing that I really like about Steven's mic, which what's the name? I forget the name of your mic. Uh, at the time I was using the Shure 87A. Oh, but you're over it. But in the last couple of weeks, uh, I've switched to what David is using. Which is, uh, the name is now forgetting me. Neumann 105. Oh, yes. okay. Well, there you go. Okay. So I, Steven that's, just that's outed himself. Switch. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I had told anybody. Uh, I want to see if anyone noticed, you know, <laughs> caught on listening, but no, no one did. No one ever notices. I mean, all, all mm -hmm. these changes that we make. I mean, even I started uh, putting, like I build a little sound booth around myself every time I record. Our studio is like a wide open concrete box. It's the worst Perfect possible. For audio. <laughs> oh God, it's terrible. So right now, I mean, every I do this every time I record. I hung a sound blanket up in front of me and put uh, baffles on either side of me, and that's the only way I can make this space usable at all. But nobody noticed. Even my the guy that was editing my podcast, I'm like, "Do you notice anything different this week?" He's like, "No, not really." <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> well, well, a good podcast mic, in fairness, isn't going to pick up a lot of audio very far away from the microphone, so that helps. That's the goal. Um, so I have the Heil PR40 running into a DBX286S, and uh, that's mostly to cut down some of the background noise. Um, mm -hmm. for my, especially, it, it doesn't matter so much for the final recording, because I'll do that in, in post. But sometimes if there's a sound I, that the guest might find distracting, um, it just cuts out a bit of that, that silent time. Um, and I, I don't use much else on it. Honestly, I don't, I don't use the compressor or anything. Um, and then I have a mute switch in between, and then that runs into a Sound Devices Mix Pre 3. Which is a, a great little interface. We've spoken about this in podcast topics in the past, but using an XLR microphone, you need a way to get that over to USB for the Mac. And one thing I really like about the Mix Pre line, uh, Relay owns one of the bigger ones, 
is that you can record into a Mac and onto an SD card at the same time. And it's basically the only line of products in the field that do that. Most of them just do one or the other, but not both at the same time. And uh, so we, we bought one for the Relay live shows, and I've been extremely happy with it. Yeah, the quality of sound devices, is it's really incredible. The only downside I've found is that it does want to be a field recorder first. So mm-hmm. some of the USB interface stuff is a little finicky or, or just doesn't work the way you'd expect, really. And I... It has its opinions yeah. about how things should work. Yeah, it's kind of strange. But, uh, you know, once you figure it out. And just to stay inside baseball for one little bit longer, the um, the Heil PR40. I've worked with one of those mics before, and they need a really strong preamp in order to work because they're just, they're low. The level is low. And the sound devices is what you need to make that mic work for you. Yeah, exactly. Well, so I originally I got the, D, sorry, actually, that's why I first bought the DBX286S because it's got a good preamp in it. It's It makes the mic a lot louder. So it was to drive this Heil is a lot of the reason I bought it. Uh, now I can run it cleanly into the MixPre 3 and it can really, it has so much signal, it can get it loud enough. But um, otherwise, and same with, I mean, everybody loves the Shure SM7B, uh, but it's even more gain hungry. It really needs a lot. And same thing, the, the MixPre 3 can handle that without putting a signal boost in the chain, which a lot of people otherwise need to do. Well, one of the nice things about audio is um, the costs are relatively small. I mean, the, the microphones we're talking about, I think, are kind of top of the line. And, like, I will never need to upgrade this one, knock on wood. And it didn't crush me with debt <laughs> to buy it, yeah. <laughs> unlike a Mac Pro. <laughs> no, it's true. Or compared to camera gear, I mean, your a7 III was uh, a lot more expensive than... Multiples. Like, for the price of an a7 III, you can get the best, the most, like, rare, best uh, mic in the yeah. world, so... Mm-hmm. And then you also, in addition to your podcast, you have a YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, yeah, YouTube's the thing that, I mean, it's probably the reason you guys are aware of me now is that um, there's been quite a lot of growth on my YouTube lately. And that's been a lot of people's into finding my podcast as well or, or finding my Instagram. Uh, YouTube is great because of the way search works on it. So when I create a video talking about the new iPhone or the MacBook Pro or the Mac Pro or any of them, uh, people are constantly searching for that. And it's the, I think it's the second biggest search engine in the world. I know I've heard that and I'm not sure if it's true, but it seems like it could be. So people are constantly looking for information about all these things. And on a lot of other platforms like like social media, like, uh, or um, sorry, like Twitter or Instagram, when you post something, it will die pretty quick. It has a very short half-life. But once you jump over to Inst- uh, to YouTube, I've had videos that, get more views now years after their release than they did when they came out. And that's pretty cool to, to have that happen. So things have a much longer lifetime there, potentially. I mean, some things die quickly too, but there's that ability for people to really discover you from a lot more angles. Um, and that's, that's just in terms of like, okay, discoverability. There's other great things about YouTube. Um, I really enjoyed the community. I've been able to connect to people in a much more tangible way than with anything I was creating before where, um, they they feel like they they know you and i think that the relationship happens on podcasting as well where you get to know much more of the personality of the person than if you're just looking at photography or a twitter account um so it creates a, a closer relationship and i've made some pretty great friends through youtube and been able to connect with a lot of people i, I really like it as a format and you get to use all your gear 
that's the best part. And I can buy new gear to make a review about it. It's a, yeah, it's a, a fountain of limitless excuses to buy new things. I think you do a good job on your channel of having a variety of topics. You you can talk very fluidly going from one video about camera equipment to set up. And then you have a recent one about music creation. You had that MacBook Pro video. Um, I feel like I, I look at that and I'm almost uh, a little bit jealous that you can kind of move between your interests so fluidly. And it still feels like one YouTube channel. It doesn't feel like you're have two or three shows sort of crammed into one place. Yeah. All the YouTube advice is to really niche down and mm-hmm. pick a topic and follow that. Uh, that's, and I get why, I mean, that's easy advice to give. And I probably give that to a lot of people. Um, I just wanted to be able to, to make it really diverse. So same thing with the podcast. That's why I, it makes it hard to describe, but it makes it something I can get more excited about because it's just a lot of, of different things that I'm interested in. And yeah, I mean, I'd really like to do more YouTube. Uh, I mean, YouTube has the potential to become our our full-time job. Like it, the way that it could, poten- like if I can continue to grow it the way that it has at its biggest times, um, that could be the main focus of everything that we do pretty soon. So um, that's, it's, yeah, it's been really fun to, to watch that happen. And um Again, the biggest challenge, though, is for us to be able to have the time to do it right. You know, I'd love to be able to at least get a video out a week, which I don't right now. Usually it's about two a month. Um, it means finding an editor um, or assistance or I don't I don't know what I'm going to do. I need I need help somehow. But you need a time turner. That's what you need. I need a lot of things. But yeah, that'd be perfect. Um, but you and then we talked earlier, but you do have a, a presence on Instagram and and you do a really good job with your Instagram posts. I mean looking at all of the knowledge and experience you have as a photographer, as a content creator. Um, I, I really am impressed with your work on Instagram. Thank you very much. Uh, Instagram is one that I get I really stuck on. Like it's hard for me to know what I want to do with it because there's sort of this pressure that if I'm identifying myself as a photographer, that every photo needs to be a great photo or like portfolio worthy. And so then there can become this wall of like, oh, this nothing's good enough. Nothing's good enough to post. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to represent myself well enough. And um, so I end up posting nothing that day. So I've actually been trying to treat it more casually and, and worrying a little bit less about uh, just about it being an amazing photo and more just like telling a story about my life. Because in, in a lot of ways, that's the point of photography is just storytelling. So um, worrying more about if it's interesting than if it's necessarily an incredible shot. Um, and then, like I was saying earlier too, Instagram is really being taken over by stories in a lot of way, just in terms of uh, total engagement and how people are using it. I've, a lot of people I talk to lately are like, yeah, I mostly just look at stories now. I barely look at the feed. So the way I've been using stories is, um, often I kind of shoot them like a little micro vlog where I uh, just edit together a quick sequence of videos. And I mean, just like a YouTube vlog, um, and uh, you, they just play one after the other. And I, I just find that a bit more interesting than having the really low quality, casual, uh, normal stories, the way that's supposed to be used. Uh, so I, I do it kind of more like real videos. And, and how do you put that? Do you put that together on a Mac or do you do that on your phone? When I'm excited about a new camera or, or I'm excited about trying something, I'll do it on, uh, on a Mac and I'll edit in Final Cut. But most of the time, what I'm using is an app called Spark Camera. And it's... It, it works similar to recording videos in how Snapchat used to do it, where you uh, you launch the app and all you're seeing is a full screen camera and you press and hold and it'll start recording. When you let go, it stops recording. 
and then it starts stacking up the sequence, the, the clips in a sequence. So um, you're basically editing as you're recording. So whatever you shoot starts to become the edit, and then you can trim them a little bit later, add music in the background. Um, but really quickly, uh, you can shoot for the edit and create a narrative and create some storytelling that, um, I mean, I find really engaged. I, I love that way of doing it because I don't have to think too hard. I don't have to feel like I'm building some editing debt. You know, when I'm shooting on a, on a real camera, on a, sorry, on a bigger camera, and then I know, okay, I'm going to have to download all this when I get home and like plug in the hard drive and color, color correct. And you can't stop yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. All, all these steps. Yeah, so when I'm doing it in Spark Camera or just on a, on a phone in general, um, sometimes I also use Video Leap to edit. Um, yeah, whatever I'm using, uh, it, it's much quicker. And that sometimes just gets something posted instead of nothing posted. I feel like, um, I, feel like I have to out myself, Stephen. Well, you, got, you guys know how I live in Orange County and I'm a fan of Star Wars and Disneyland simultaneously. Apparently, there is a, a rebel spy in the brand new Star Wars land or Galaxy's Edge and he's been sending me pictures and a description of what happens to him every day. You know, the, his struggles over on Instagram had a Batu B-A-T-U-U underscore rebel. I don't know. He, he's a, he's a rough guy, but he's having me help him post this stuff. But I, I'm so clueless on Instagram. <laughs> he's got like a thousand followers and I haven't really done anything. And like Tyler's talking <laughs> about stories. And I'm like, I've never done a story. Poor Batu rebel. He's running around <laughs> Batu getting shot at. I haven't even done a story for him. I'm looking at it now. It's great. I think I need to uh, take a course from from Tyler. You, you've got this covered on your YouTube channel too. Yeah, I did. I did a whole video about it that hopefully could help. That I mean, the video I did is a slightly more advanced stage. I think you can treat stories more simply. Um, I mean, Stephen, you're doing stories, right? Do you do you have any advice for easy easy stories like low pressure? I think a really fun thing to do on Instagram. I did this a couple of weeks ago, and this I saved into a highlight. So you can go see it on my uh, profile is that I was doing some uh, modifications to my pickup truck because I live in the South and that's what we do, I guess. And I thought a story was a fun way to like bring my followers along with, hey, I'm going to try this thing. You can see over the course of a couple of hours how it's going. And at the end is the payoff that, oh, hey, the lights that I installed, they worked. And, you know, it's just like a little sort of narrative of like what I did on a Saturday with a friend and turn it into like it's weird, like interesting piece of content, and then it can go away or you can choose to save it. So I think finding like a little story to tell, a little thread to pull can make for some really interesting things. Like uh, another one I did that um, I've gotten a lot of <laughs> talks about, I stayed at this Airbnb for WBC last year and everything in this place was labeled. And like when I say everything, I mean every light switch, the dish soap, uh, you know, so there's one in here of the thermostat, you know, it's like the slider of heat off and cool that's printed on the thermostat. And then this Airbnb owner put a big label that said the same thing. Like everything was labeled. Wow, that's very helpful. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I think, I think people need to see this. And just again, pulling this thread of like, this is a weird thing that's happening in my life. I, I like those. I like Instagram stories as a way to share those things. Yeah. I think stories is exactly what they should be called. Like it's such a correct name for them that this is also just a difference between photos and videos if you're trying to create a great photograph it all needs to exist in one moment and all be visible at the same time and capture the whole story in a single frame whereas um, in video or instagram stories each 
moment matters less. So it, and it's more about developing a story. So sometimes I find it easier to shoot video for that reason that it's like, look, if it's, I didn't get it all in that last frame, but I can fill it in with this next thing that I show. And you're gradually developing more and more context and, um, interest by like over a period of time instead of worrying about it all at once. And Instagram stories, in a way, they're like the simplest form of filmmaking because they could just be stills as well. Well, uh, Stephen, what is your Instagram uh, handle? Uh, it is Stephen M. Hackett. There'll be a link in the show notes. Yeah, and mine's Max Barkey. Tyler, wh- what is yours? Mine is Stallman, which, I mean, same name pretty much everywhere. S-T-O. And that's also single L. There is a much more famous Stallman out there. Yes. <laughs> Richard Stallman, who has two L's. And then, so. and then Batu Rebel. That guy, Batu Rebel, he just writes a lot. I don't know what, wherever he comes from, apparently he <laughs> writes a lot. But but I, I'm doing a poor job of his Instagram management for him. <laughs> I got to figure it out. <laughs> but it is fun, I think, for, for folks listening. I think this is a platform that a lot of people are on. It's, uh, it, in some ways, I think it's it's a lot more positive than things you get on Twitter these days. So, um that may be worth checking out and, and definitely watch Tyler's videos so you can make really great videos. Yeah. I think this, this Instagram thing's got legs. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think it's going anywhere. I want to get better at it. So my kids like start asking me how I did something on Instagram because they don't care about anything I do as Max Barkey. But if I could make some, some killer Instagram content, I think I would actually get a tiny amount of respect. <laughs> well, I know when we were together in Chicago for our live show earlier this year, uh, they were in charge of your sort of, Instagram stuff like we were on stage they were my social media team (laughs) yeah they were you know they're how is he on Instagram oh he's not it's it's his much cooler daughters yeah this episode of MPU is brought to you by Away Away creates thoughtful products designed to change how you see the world they started with the perfect suitcase and now offer a range of essentials that solve real travel problems their luggage is loaded with features the Way carry-on comes in an array of colors, two sizes, and two materials. And it's lightweight, durable, and made to last for a lifetime of travel. It has built-in compression pads to help you pack more in, and those four 360-degree spinner wheels guarantee a smooth ride. And their bigger carry-on is sized up to make the most of the overhead bin. Away suitcases are designed to last a lifetime. You get a 100-day trial on everything, plus free shipping within the U.S., Europe, and Australia. In my family, we have several Away suitcases, and the carry-on was great on a recent trip out to California. My wife used it and really enjoyed how much stuff she could pack in such a small case. We've taken our Away suitcases all over the country and even out of the country, and every single time they've served us well. So go check it out now, and for $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com MPU and use the promo code MPU during checkout. That's awaytravel.com MPU, and the promo code MPU during checkout will get you 20 bucks off. Thank you so much to Away for their support of this show and Relay FM. Tyler, in addition to making all this amazing content, you are on the road a lot. Some would say too much. <laughs> the, it, it, it is all uh, tied into what we're doing. A lot of our jobs just are uh, involved travel. It's, it's kind of how we end up doing the things that we do. A lot of the times having an interesting location or background is sort of key to the job. It needs to look exciting and look nice. So we'll uh, end up 
going to a new place to do that. Um, a lot of the time we're, we're kind of going to um, similar places. Like we'll spend a lot of time just bouncing between like, you know, LA, New York, and Toronto where there's either clients or just other creators or people we're going to collaborate with. Um, but then we also uh, like to try to every once in a while, at least once or twice a year, go somewhere exciting and strange and new and that we've never seen before and uh, create some content while we're there. Well, as a fellow geek who travels a lot, help us out. You know, what are, what are some of the tricks you've learned through this process? Well, I'm going to try to make it sound like I don't constantly struggle with it, um, but it, That's, it, we get that. We all do that and we get it. We've found a way. We found a way to make it work. I mean, the things still get done, even if it's a little painful on the way. So, I mean, I already talked about the, the MacBook Pro that I use for everything. Um, because of that, it means that I, I can't really travel with an iPad. We have a bit too much gear to try to make that lifestyle work, even though I, I love the new iPad Pros. They um, haven't found any professional uh, place in my life. But, yeah, I mean, what else in terms of technology? Like, uh, an important thing to keep in mind is uh, your ability to charge things, which that's a pretty obvious piece of advice, but I have a specific one. Um, whenever you're traveling somewhere that has different outlets than your home country, always bring a power bar and then always make sure that everything that you're going to plug into it, as many as possible, have a separate, um, like a two prong adapter that can, uh, how do I describe this? It's like attached to a cable so that it doesn't take up two spaces. Mm -hmm. So for example, I have like an anchor USB multi output charger. There's two versions of it. There's one where the, the charger plugs right into the wall and that's pretty big. It can take up a bunch of extra space and you could, it'll often block an extra plug or you can get one that has a cable running out of it. The same goes for a lot of camera chargers. So for, for Canon, for example, my 5D has a version that plugs right into the wall, and I have that. But I, when I'm traveling, I try to bring the one that has a cord running out of it so I can plug that into the power bar. So just be aware of how many things you're going to be plugging into the wall and, and find ways to make sure that they're going to fit because you're constantly out of out of juice. <laughs> uh, everything is always dead at the end of every day. And you're probably carrying USB batteries like, like you got oh, a whole yeah, circle yeah, got, of like, them. It's like a deck of cards yeah. full of the Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, we, we burn through a lot of those, especially if you're shooting photos or videos on the phone. Um, so, somebody needs to make like one of those Chewbacca belts, except yeah. just, just loaded <laughs> with batteries. <laughs> I think that'd be great. I could use one of those. A TSA would love that going through an airport. I don't know. what I get. Which direction should I go? I, there's, there's, there's the tech side and just the travel side. Let's talk about the travel side. Why not? Because sure. you do a lot of it. So, okay, here's a big one. This one, uh, honestly, my wife does the hard work here, but it's really important. Uh, so I'll, I'll give give her the, the, the work of uh, talking about it. So um, scouting out where you're going is really, really important if you want good photos. Um, and not just like professional photos, but just if you want to like be excited about the photos that you take, it's so helpful to browse Instagram and also Pinterest. Those are the places we go to just find some of those exciting locations that you may not have heard about. There's been tons of examples. The best example is on the, the trip that we just took. We went to the Dead Sea. And when you get there, the, the Dead Sea is, is very flat. There's, there's nothing around. And it's incredibly beautiful, but there's not much to see. Like the scenery is, it's one thing. Um, but just on our way there, she pulled out her phone and found this tiny little island made entirely of salt. Like the salt just piled up out in the middle of the water. And it has a single dead tree in the middle of it. And it's incredibly beautiful. So we she did all this internet sleuthing of like exactly where is it in the lake? And we found it and we went out there and um, swam out to it. And uh, it turned out to be just one of our favorite photos ever. It's really incredible place. 
but we didn't know about it on the way there. You never would have just stumbled on it because you have to swim to get to it. And there's, we always find something like that. There's, there's something really unique and special in the area that you're going to. And somebody's already probably taken a photo of it. Honestly, it's, it's challenging to find something completely new. So looking around online can be just really helpful ways, just, you know, by either searching for hashtags of the area or geotags, um, you know, Pinterest has like, Pinterest doesn't seem to be as a, popular anymore or i don't know people don't talk about it as much but it's really great resource for collecting ideas and and getting inspired about what you want to shoot when you go somewhere and how do you deal with the time changes i mean it sounds like you're moving around quite a lot yeah i i mean the main way is to not to sleep poorly this is one of those like i just do it wrong we just don't don't sleep very much we're always really tired when you travel but the thing i think other people could learn from and that is really helpful is if you're changing time zones a lot just don't adapt to the new time zone and wake up at sunrise so um you know uh, recently that meant five o'clock in the last place we'd have to be, kind of be where we want to shoot by five so we're getting up at least at f- or four at the minimum and um but the thing is we're in somewhere completely different we have all this jet lag on our way there so we're exhausted no matter what so we just go to bed early get up really early and then when you arrive no one is there the, the best illustration of this was when we were in Dubrovnik, uh, Croatia, just one of the most incredible cities in the world. I mean, it's, you know, it's where Game of Thrones and uh, Star Wars are filmed. It's so beautiful, but it's a walled city, so there's a limited amount of space inside of it. Um, and by lunchtime, cruise ships arrive and literally completely fill the city. I, I think at some point they're going to have to limit how many people are coming in because it is, you just can't move. But we would go there at, you know, four or five in the morning and there is absolutely nobody. The streets are completely empty and you have the best light. The sun is just coming up. It's very soft, warm, and, and from like low place in the sky, it's the, the best possible lighting. And you're by yourself. It's a completely different experience. So anywhere we go, we try to make sure that as often as possible, we're waking up uncomfortably early, which I hate. I don't like waking up early, but it is so worth it when you travel. So uh, anytime you can, I, I really, I think it's worth it. And then just Try to go to bed early. Like, we, we just don't party when we travel. Okay. That's, that's good advice. Just don't party. That's all. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, photos or party. You got to, you know, one or the other. Well, you know, you say you don't like waking up early, but I find when I'm dealing with jet lag, it's not even a question of waking up early. It's just, I'm just a mess anyway, so it really doesn't matter. What about apps and, you know, data management? Any tricks when you're on the road? Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a challenge. We found a way that works for us. Um, so, uh, I, I do have a NAS Synology back at home in our studio and it has a lot of our archival photos. So that is plugged into the iMac and I love screens to be able to access that stuff. So a lot of the time, if we don't have all of our photos with us, um, we can access everything at home through, uh, logging in remote. Do you have any data issues Um, with that? Like, uh, because you're going, international and uh so screens is a great app that allows you to remote back to your your presumably your iMac at home is that ever a problem like is a data pipeline ever a concern for you when you do that we this is another one where we just sort of suffer through we just pay a lot for our phone bills so our our local phone carrier has like has something called roam like home meaning we can just pay uh, a couple extra dollars a day and then we have the same amount of data that we have when we're in Canada so uh we can use a lot of it and then uh, Wi-Fi is always a struggle. It's usually too slow. So I don't know. We kind of struggle through it, but it hasn't, it hasn't stopped us from 
doing anything really critical. Some somehow we've been able to make it work so far. So you're the phone company equivalent of a whale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very literally true. We just we just made some changes to our plan this month. That just by like reorganizing it, we're saving. I think one hundred and fifty dollars a month. <laughs> use, cl- use cloud storage too. I mean, I, I use it for the phone. The phone is backing up to. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is an important part of it. Uh, it backs up to iCloud. You know, I pay for the family plan on iCloud, so both of our phones are constantly backing up whenever they hit Wi-Fi, and also to the free version of Google Photos. Um, that's I, that's where like everything ever goes. Google Photos is just constantly receiving dumps of smaller JPEGs of everything. So in an emergency. If we lost the highest quality of everything, hopefully we'd have some version of it left. But uh, the main way that we're backing up has to be on on hard drives because it would they, it would never finish. We're shooting too fast to have online backups ever catch up. So a normal memory card for us is 64 gigs, and we will usually fill one or two of those per shoot. And then if we shoot a few times a week, you know that never gets backed up. It just never finishes. So I tried a few times, um, but it. I just I couldn't really make it make sense for us. So instead, yeah, we're carrying around all of these USB drives, uh, keeping them in sync using ChronoSync. Um, right, right now, I'm using ChronoSync Express. But since I started using SetApp more, they were a sponsor on some videos, and then I just really got hooked. I mean, there's some great apps in SetApp, and uh, I've been using ChronoSync since way before that. But the Express version does everything that I need. I'm just keeping the the drives mirrored and erasing differences once we're done culling stuff. So. Yeah, ChronoSync. I mean, I think that goes back to like episode one of Mac Power Users. <laughs> it's been around forever. That maybe that's where I heard about it. <laughs> hey, maybe it's just a great application to solve the old problem of syncing data before you had reliable cloud services. But it still works, especially for someone like you who's doing a lot of large file media. I mean, I don't think there's anything better. Yeah. Yeah, I've, it's really critical. It's, I forget about it sometimes because it's such a small, simple, boring part of the pipeline, but it's really, really helpful and important in making sure that, especially like having some verification, making sure that nothing's corrupted when you back it up, stuff like that. Can I, can I pick your brain for a minute on, um, I guess, camera cards, you know, the SD and the SD mini cards? Uh, I have several devices that use them. And I'm sure there's listeners that have the same problem. Every time you go to buy one on Amazon, now there are like multiple classifications of memory cards. Which ones are we supposed to buy, Tyler? Okay, it's kind of tough. Um, it depends what you're creating. Uh, the, the highest requirements come with larger raw uh, photos. That's that's kind of when it's worth spending. See, money, I would have thought it was 4K um, video, so I'm already going down the wrong trail. Yeah, and... 4K video has it has a, mi- a hard minimum, and if you don't shoot on a fast enough card, it basically stops working. But that minimum isn't the highest level. Um, whereas at the highest level, you stop seeing any advantage in 4K because it's already once it's fast enough, it's fast enough. Like it's kind of like an HDMI cable. Like if it can carry the signal, like you're good. It's it's not going to record the video any faster. The advantages come in that it, for for stills for photos. Yeah, sorry. When I say stills, I'm referring to photos. Uh, they are sometimes the card is slower than the buffer on the camera. So if you're shooting quickly, all of a sudden it'll say like, okay, buffering, and it's writing the previous photos that you shot to the card and you're waiting for that. Um, so that's when you need the highest speed cards. Otherwise, the kind of mid-level is, is usually good enough. I typically, actually, I, I honestly, I forget how the rankings work exactly. So instead of explaining it poorly in this, I'll, um, I'm going to refer you guys to a video by 
YouTuber named Gerald Undone, and he does a great job of breaking it down, and hopefully you can throw that in the show notes. Uh, there's a lot of different classifications and names and stuff that I've, I've, I even find them hard to memorize, so um, I'd have to look at my cards to remember what they are. Yeah, I, I need a couple, and literally I just put a... Um like I put a pin in it and I said, okay, I can't, I'm not even qualified to buy at this point. I have to go research before I can do it. So I'll watch this video because it does depend on what devices you're using and what you're shooting. But yeah, and but, I, I well, think, it used to be a lot easier <laughs> and I sound like a cranky old man, but you know, it, just don't, don't get the cheapest ones. It's like buy yeah. the mid level ones, buy the, buy the mid priced ones from a reputable brand. Um, most of mine are Lexar, but SanDisk is going to do just as just as well sony has some good ones like you know there's there's a, there's a lot of good ones out there don't spend the most don't spend the least you'll probably be okay all right last question one of my favorite questions for guests on uh, workflow shows share a few apps with us that that you particularly love that people may not know about and i just dropped this on you so i i, I apologize oh yeah that people don't know about um i don't know what i wrote down. i mean like i like trip mode i'm sure listeners of this show know about trip mode by now um, what else is like fun here? I'm going to open my phone real quick. Uh, I like, I like to experiment with a lot of apps that don't sure. stick around, um, or that I just use very occasionally. A good one is, uh, it's called touch retouch where you can remove objects from your iPhone photos. That's fun. Um, Facetune too. Facetune is known because you can like remove all the blemishes. It's sort of famous for that, but it actually has a lot of other advanced editing tools that are, are pretty impressive. Like once you start digging around, there's some really crazy stuff in there. What do you use it for? Uh, just like it's a it's a variety pack of it's a Swiss Army knife of photo editing tools. Um, Facetune, I've never heard of that. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, the I mean, Facetune has been one of the it's been like one of the top earning apps for a long time on the App Store. But it's usually people think of it as being for beauty bloggers uh, trying to clean up their skin, like making overly smooth skin. That's the reputation it has, but it actually well, can do. I, I definitely need it quite a lot more. Than I definitely that. need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right up your alley. A lot of people love Snapseed. I find a lot of its editing algorithms aren't as good. Just the way that it treats uh, exposure and contrast and color adjustments, I prefer what Viseo or Darkroom can do. They both, to my, to my eye, are superior in their ability to edit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything really like out of the box, uh, out of the ordinary. Well, those are some good ones, though. Those are some definitely some. I I have some uh, Lightroom presets that I think have some nice color in them. If anybody wants those, I I feel like the uh, the photo editing and retouching apps. There are so many that I am sure there's a lot of apps out there that would be very useful to me that I'm just not aware of because it's overwhelming when you go in the store. The, the pure number of different filter-based apps and, and other edit-based apps. Uh, so I, I've relied on some of the stuff you said in the past, and I've been actually trying to limit the editing workflow to just two or three apps and ones that I know and I know where the good filters are. But I, I do think it can be a challenge for people trying to pick this stuff up. Yeah, that is advice that I'll give is, is don't try to use everything. Like experiment. You know, test everything, but don't think that you need to look at every filter every time you decide. I go back to the same filters over and over again just to speed things up because it's it can really bog you down constantly making new decisions. Um, I mean, same with the way I'm working in Lightroom. You know, I have these the, those presets. I just put them on every photo. There's only four or five of them, and I'm just choosing, okay, do I want the more saturated one or the less saturated one? Like, there, there's just sort of subtle differences between them. And I'm making less choices each time that I need to edit something because it can really 
you can spend all day like, oh, do, you know, I have a hundred different versions of this photo to look at before I decide what I'm going to use. And that's not the most productive way to spend your time. Well, Tyler, you do spend your time productively because you have a successful podcast, a, a hugely successful YouTube channel, an Instagram account that I envy. And uh, we're going to put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing all this with us. We are not going to wait 10 years to have you on again. <laughs> oh, thanks so much, David. You know, honestly, it's really great to be here. You guys are an amazing part of the Mac and Apple community. All right. That does it for Mac Power Users episode 489. Thanks again, Tyler. We'll like we said, we'll have links for everything. Thanks to our sponsors, Samebox, Omni Group, and Away. And we'll see you all next week.